Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie K, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you P.D. James's Cover Her Face, an Adam Dalgleish mystery, where a young woman who used her body and brains to make it up the social ladder, but now she lies across the bed with bruises on her body and around her throat. Someone has decided that the wages of sin is death, and Chief Inspector Dalgleish must find who that someone is. This will be a four-part series, so sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this nostalgic mystery radio. Thank you for listening. Chapter of Cover Her Face, and decision time for Inspector Dalgleish. He's hoping to flush out the murderer of Sally Jupp, and just when he thinks he's got the whole thing sewn up, a stranger appears to spoil everything. Did you want something of me, Inspector? Ah, uh, Mrs. Maxey, I should like to see everyone here at eight o'clock this evening, please. Suddenly I sensed someone behind me in the doorway, and I turned. It seems I've given your maid a bit of a shock. I'm uh, sorry to butt in like this, but I guess Sally never told you about me. The name's James Ritchie. Sally will be expecting me. She never told me what sort of job she's got exactly, and I don't want to cause any uh, inconvenience. But I've come to take her away. I'm her husband. Cover Her Face by P.D. James. Dramatized by Neville Teller. With Sean Phillips, Hugh Grant, B.T. Adney, and with Robin Ellis as Adam Dalgleish. Sitting quietly in that drawing room in later years, I would often see again in my mind's eye that gangling and confident ghost from the past, and sense again the shocked silence which followed his words. That silence could only have lasted a few seconds, yet in retrospect it seemed as if minutes passed, while we all gazed back at him in incredulous horror. Someone had to speak. It was Deborah. Sally's dead. Didn't they tell you? She's dead and buried. They say one of us killed her. What? What in God's name are you saying? Come with me, Mr. Ritchie. You too, Dr. Maxey, if you don't mind. Explanation somewhere else, I think. In the business room, perhaps. But what happened to Sally? For Christ's sakes, tell me what happened. This way, please. Poor devil. I must get back to my husband. Catherine, perhaps you'd come to help? Of course, Mrs. Maxey. I don't suppose Martha will be much use at present. She seems totally unnerved by all this. I think we're all rather shaken. Felix, when Stephen is finished with Inspector Dalgleish, I think he should come to his father. Deborah should come up too when she's recovered. Perhaps you'd tell her. Yes, of course. Uh, how long do you think it'll be? Not long now, I'm afraid. No need to tell the inspector. His plan for tonight can stand. It'll all be over long before eight o'clock. Yes? Mrs. Proctor? Yes? My name's Dalgleish. Oh, you're the inspector from Scotland Yard. You're looking into... That's the... right. Is your husband at home? You'd better come in. Thank you. This way. Through here. Uh, Victor, to you. Inspector Dalgleish is here to see you. Mr. Proctor. I think the inspector wants to talk to me in private, Beryl. Oh, uh, yes. 
Yes, of course, Victor, dear. I, I'll just... Um, Mr. Proctor, certain documents have been passed to me. Documents? Concerning claims made by you to a national charity. One of them. It seems you represented your niece Sally Jupp to be a war orphan without means. Oh, I suppose I should have mentioned the 2,000 quid. But that was capital. Capital left in trust for her, money that you'd spent. Well, I'd fed her, hadn't I? I had to bring her up. Capital left in trust for her to inherit when she was 21. Did you ever tell Miss Jupp that her father had left her this money? At the time, she was only a baby. Afterwards, well, there didn't seem any point. Because by then, the trust money had been converted to your own use. I told you. I had to use it to keep her. I was entitled to. We were the trustees, Beryl and me. And she had the nerve to refer to her rights. We fed and clothed her all those years without another penny. Except for the three grants from the Help Them Now Association. Mr Proctor... Were you in the grounds of Martingale House last Saturday? I didn't go to the fete. I was out cycling all day. Hmm. I'd like you to look at these two photographs. They were taken on Saturday afternoon at Martingale. So what? Only some kids? Well, it's not the children who interest me, Mr Proctor. It's that figure there, see? In the background. Not much doubt, is there, Mr Proctor? Oh, all right. I better tell you, I was there. Sherry, anyone? Actually, Felix, could you pour me a large whiskey? I've had about as much as I can stand today. Not quite, I'm afraid, Deb. Don't forget that Doug Leash fellow's coming back at eight. Oh, God. You'd have thought he'd have the decency to leave us alone this evening. Where's Mrs Maxey? Walking back to the vicarage with Hinks. They'll be arranging Father's funeral, I suppose. What a day. I still haven't grasped all the details. This man, Ritchie, was married to Sally, I take it. And so it seems. They met while she was working in London, got married in secret about a month before he went to Venezuela on a building job, a short-term contract and excellent pay. But why on earth didn't she say? Why all the mystery? Well, apparently he wouldn't have got the job if the firm had known. They had a strict rule, single men only. But Sally was mad keen to get married before he went. Ritchie thinks she liked the idea of putting one over on her aunt and uncle. A pity he didn't make sure she wasn't pregnant before he left. Perhaps he asked and she lied. I didn't inquire. None of my business. He was a chap who'd returned home to find that his wife had been murdered in this house, leaving a child he never even knew existed. I don't want a half hour like that again. Well, this explains a lot, of course. It's Sally's chat with the vicar on Thursday, for instance. What she must have said was that Jimmy was about to have a father. Hinks assumed she was talking about getting married. We all did. But she was engaged to you, Stephen. She accepted you? No, no. I asked her to marry me. She never said she would. And that's all she came out with last Saturday, remember? Well, madam, I wonder if a maid's uniform would be entirely appropriate for the girl your son's just asked to marry him. Sally adored a mystery, and this was one at my expense. No. She was in love with Richie, all right. He showed us her letters. No doubt about it. He was pathetically anxious to let me know how much in love they were. None of this would have happened if Sally had told the truth about her marriage. It's asking for trouble to pretend about a thing like that. How did Richie get in touch with her? Through Derek Pullen. He sent his letters enclosed in an envelope addressed to Pullen and he handed them over to Sally at pre-arranged meetings. She never told him they were from her husband. I don't know what story she concocted, but it must have been a good one. He was pledged to secrecy. <laughs> Sally knew how to choose her dupes. Mm, she liked amusing herself with people, but they can be dangerous playthings. 
Obviously, one of her dupes thought the joke had gone far enough. Wasn't you by any chance, Maxie? You always were an offensive bastard. Ah, an inspector calls. Now is the hour. Or almost. He's a few minutes early. Inspector Dalgleish had hinted that his investigation was nearly over. It seemed essential to me that we heard his conclusions, and I wanted nothing to stand in the way of the meeting he had asked for. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Sergeant Martin and I are very grateful to you for agreeing to meet us. Did we have much choice? You're under no constraint, Mrs. Risker. I thought you might want to know how far we've got with the investigation. Of course we want to know. Have you reached any conclusions? That's the main thing. Yes, Dr. Maxey, I have reached certain conclusions. Well? Before I disclose them, we'd like to share some of the thinking that led us to reach them. I'm afraid this is a journey we're not going to enjoy. Bear with me, Mr. Anne. Are you all right, Mrs. Maxey? Would you like a glass of water? Thank you, Catherine. I think I would. It's been a long day. Allow me, Mrs. Maxey. Oh, thank you, Sergeant. There was nothing straightforward about Sally Jupp's death. The evidence pointed in two different directions from the start. She'd been strangled suddenly and with considerable force and by someone using their bare hands. All this suggested a crime committed on impulse. But then, what about the drugged cocoa? That took planning and a good deal of premeditation. Perhaps two people tried to kill her. Separately and on the same night? No. That stretches credulity to the limit. I dismissed that idea almost at once. We weren't the only ones to hate her. What about Miss Liddell? It's all over the village that Sally had found something out about her and was threatening to tell. I can hardly see poor old Liddell climbing up stack pipes or sneaking in at the back door. You can't seriously imagine that she'd set out to kill Sally with her bare hands. She might, if she knew that Sally was drugged. How could she know? She was leaving the house with Dr Epps as Sally took the cup of cocoa up to bed and don't forget it was my cup she took. The sommeil must have been put in later. It couldn't have been. She went straight to her room. What chance was there? It doesn't make sense. None of it makes sense if the drugging and the strangling are connected. You have another explanation? Suppose this drugging wasn't an isolated incident. Suppose someone had been doping Sally's evening drink regularly. Someone who knew that she was the only one to drink cocoa. So the tablets could safely be put into the cocoa powder. But why? Let's assume someone in the house had suffered more from Sally than anyone realised. Someone who wanted to discredit her with Mrs. Maxey, to complain if she consistently overslept. Martha? Martha? Of course. She could always get at those sleeping tablets. But why on Saturday night? After that scene at dinner, Mrs. Maxey had more to worry about than Sally getting up late. And why did Martha hide the bottle under Deborah's name peg? I thought she was devoted to the family. So did the family. Why did she leave the drugged cocoa powder for Sally that night? Quite simply because she didn't know about the proposed engagement. She wasn't in the dining room at the time, and no one told her. But as soon as Sally's body was found, she was in a blind panic. She thought she'd killed Sally with the drug. She ran to Mr. Max's room, took the sommeil, and hid it. Dear heaven, it can't be. She's dead. <gasps> oh, my God! While the rest of you stood around the bed, Martha's one thought was to hide the bottle. She ran to the garden with it, hid it in the first soft earth she found, and hastily marked it with the nearest peg. It happened to be yours, Mrs. Riscoe. And then, Sergeant? And then, sir, she went back to the kitchen, emptied the remaining cocoa powder and the lining paper into the stove, washed out the tin and put it in the dustbin. Exactly. 
And I believe that the next thing that happened was that Mr. Hearn came into the kitchen to see if Martha was all right. Isn't that so, Mr. Hearn? I did look in on her. She seemed stunned and kept repeating that Sally must have killed herself. I pointed out that that was anatomically impossible, and that seemed to upset her more. She burst out sobbing. Relief, I suspect. I doubt if Martha actually admitted she'd been drugging Sally. She didn't. Not to me. That doesn't mean you didn't guess. I suspect you coached her in what to say to the police. In fact, you've been quite ready throughout this case, Mr. Hearn, to allow the police to be misled. Towards the end, you went a step further and actually faked an attack on Mrs. Riscoe. That was my idea, Inspector. I made him do it. I may have guessed about Martha, but she didn't tell me and I didn't ask. It wasn't my affair. <laughs> no, it wasn't your affair. That's been the attitude of you all throughout, hasn't it? Don't let's pry into each other's affairs. If we must have a murder, let it be handled with taste. Even your efforts to hamper the police would have been more effective if you'd bothered to talk to each other. That fake attack while Dr. Maxey was safely in London, it was a pretty poor effort at shielding him. But it wouldn't have been necessary at all if Dr. Maxey had told you that he had an alibi for the time of Sally's death. And young Derek Pullen, sir. Exactly, Sergeant. He needn't have tortured himself wondering if he ought to shield you, Dr. Maxey. If you'd bothered to explain to him what you were doing with a ladder in the garden on Saturday night. I suppose there's no objection to us knowing what you were doing with the ladder? Of course not. I was bringing it back from outside Bocock's cottage. We'd used it during the afternoon. One of the balloons had got caught up in his elm. I didn't want to leave the ladder there. The old boy would have carried it back next day by himself, and it's too much for him at his age. I wasn't to know I'd find Pullen lurking about in the old stables. Out he steps from the shadows like an avenging fury and accuses me of exercising some kind of droit de seigneur with Sally. I told him to mind his own business, and he lunged at me. I'd had about as much as I could stand, so I struck out and knocked off his glasses. All pretty vulgar and stupid. And as soon as he heard of the murder, I suppose he put two and two together and assumed you'd use the ladder to climb up to Sally's room and kill her. It's a pity you didn't tell us about all this earlier, Stephen. That poor boy could have been spared a great deal of worry. Dr. Maxey had his reasons for keeping quiet. He was trying to protect the family, weren't you, Dr. Maxey? You wanted the police to think there'd been a ladder within easy reach of Sally's window all evening, and you didn't want us to know that the ladder hadn't been returned before twenty past twelve. That's why you lied about the time you got to bed, isn't it? If Sally was killed at midnight by someone under this roof, you wanted as many suspects as possible. Something like that. You've already eliminated two of them, Dr. Maxey, to add to Mrs. Bultituft. Yourself and Mr. Pullen. So it wasn't Pullen? How could it have been? He certainly hadn't killed her when he spoke to me, and he was in no condition to do so afterwards. And she was already dead by the time you arrived at Martingale from Bocock's cottage. So it wasn't you. How do you know she was dead then? All anyone really knows is that she was alive at half-past ten and dead by the morning. Not really. There's the forensic evidence. And two people can put the time of death much closer than that. One is the murderer. But there's someone else. Come in. Oh, it's you, Martha. Yes? Mr Proctor's here, madam, for the inspector. Now, look here, Inspector. I've got to have protection. Protection? Who from? That Richie fellow, of course. Sally's husband. He's been round my home threatening me. Drunk, if you ask me. It's not my fault if she got herself murdered, and I told him so. I won't have him upsetting my wife. My daughter was there, too. All that shouting is not nice in front of a child. I had nothing to do with this murder, as you very well know, and I want protection. I remember you. You were in this house on the day of the murder. 
Hey, you! What are you doing in here? Me? Do you mean me? Yes. This is a private house. Sorry, I was looking for the toilet. The lavatory's in the garden. It's very well signposted. Oh, yes, of course. I'm sorry. You'd better come and join the prayer meeting, Mr Proctor. I assume you're interested in hearing who killed your niece? Don't be a fool, Stephen. Keep him out of it. So I'm not to stay? Oh, you'd like to pin it on me, wouldn't you? All of you. Don't think I don't know. If she'd been poisoned or knocked on the head, I'd have been in Queer Street all right. But one thing you can't pin on me is a strangling. And here's why. The scrawny, red-faced little man raised his gloved right hand in a curiously triumphant gesture. We stared in a sort of fascinated horror as he peeled off the glove. Did you lose your hand in an accident, Mr Proctor? In the bombing. They can do wonders with artificial limbs these days. This hand lets Mr Proctor lead an almost normal life. But one thing he certainly can't do with it is strangle someone. He could be left-handed. He could, Miss Bowers, but he isn't. And it was quite clear that Sally was killed by a strong right-handed grip. It was Mr Proctor's hand which young Johnny Wilcox saw closing the trap door in the stable. Then they left. Sally opened the trap door and went down first, and the man went after her. When I looked out, the trap door was just coming down. It must have been the man doing it, cos Sally had already gone down the ladder. But all I saw was a hand in a brown glove. Who else would be wearing leather gloves on a hot summer day? You were quite right, Mrs Riscoe. Mr. Proctor was in Martingale that afternoon. Well, what if I was? Sally asked me to come. She was my niece, wasn't she? Oh, come now, Proctor. You aren't going to tell us this was a social call. How much was she asking? Forty pounds. That's what she was after. I'm much good at her doing now. She wanted the money because her husband was coming home, and she intended to get it by threatening to expose her uncle to his employers. Expose what? None of your business. You might have dared her to do her worst, I suspect, Mr. Proctor, if she hadn't used one particular phrase. She talked about her rights. What she meant exactly, or what she suspected, we'll never know. But for reasons we needn't discuss here, the remark made you rather uncomfortable, Mr. Proctor. Isn't that so? And she saw it. Oh, she was sharp, all right. I agreed to give her the money. She had it all worked out. I was to get the cash and bring it to her that night. She made me follow her into the house and up to her room. That's when I met you, Mrs Riscoe, on my way back down the stairs. She'd shown me the back door and said she'd open it for me at midnight. I was to stay in the trees at the back of the lawn until she switched her light on and off. That was to be the signal. She was pulling your strings for the fun of watching you dance. <clears throat> Poor Sally. She had to have drama, even if it killed her. And it did, in the end. If she hadn't played with people, she'd be alive today. There was a kind of madness about her that day. I suppose it could have been her kind of happiness. Please, please, tell us what happened. I think the killer went up to Miss Jupp's room, desperate to find out the girl's intentions. Perhaps there was an idea of arranging a deal of some sort. Anyway, the visitor knocked and was let in. It was someone, you see, from whom Sally feared nothing. She would be in bed. She must have been sleepy, but she hadn't taken much of the cocoa and she wasn't drugged. Only too tired to be bothered with rational argument. You can't know what was said. We can guess. Sally was in love with her husband, looking forward to his return. But she adored secrets, the feeling of power they gave her. After all, this particular secret had given her a free home for seven months. Remember, St Mary's Refuge is for unmarried mothers. I think she enjoyed herself there. I bet she did. 
I can just imagine her relishing the thought of Miss Liddell's face when she learned the truth. But why didn't she tell you, Stephen? She'd have saved everyone a great deal of trouble. She'd have saved her own life. But was it in her character to tell? Her husband would soon be here. Dr. Max's proposal was just extra excitement, a new complication, another chance of private amusement. I think that when her visitor came to her, she was lying back on her bed, sleepy, happy and confident, feeling perhaps that she held the Maxi family in the palm of her hand. Wretched girl. Yes. She wasn't a kind person, and I don't think she was kind to her visitor. I think she underestimated the force of the anger and desperation that were confronting her. Perhaps she laughed. <laughs> yes, I think she laughed. And that was the moment the strong fingers closed around her throat. You've missed your vocation, Inspector. You should be on the stage. Don't be a fool, Felix. Can't you see he's achieving precisely the effect he wants? Whose fingers, Dalgleish? Why go on with this farce? Whose fingers? Our killer goes to the door and turns out the light. And then, a moment of doubt. Is she really dead? Perhaps the child turns in his sleep. Whatever the reason, the light is switched on again for a moment. On, then off. Out there, under the trees, you, Mr. Proctor, see the awaited signal. You make your way towards the back door. Yeah, it was open, just as she said. I switched on my torch and went up to her room. She showed me the way that afternoon. Her door was shut. There was no light showing. That struck me as odd. I didn't want to knock, so I opened it and called to her. She didn't answer. I shone the torch across the room and onto her bed. Funny how you can't mistake death. Sally was dead all right. I went in, closed the door and switched on the light. I went over and looked at her. Then I saw the bruise on her neck. Until then, I don't think the word murder had come into my mind. When it did, well, I suppose I lost my head. I made for the door. But you were too late, weren't you, Mr. Proctor? You heard footsteps coming down the hall. Do you mean that when I knocked at Sally's door... It was you, was it? I just managed to pull the bolt when you knocked and called her. You went away after a bit, but I wasn't going to wait to see what happened. I switched off the light. And you got out of the side window. That's right, isn't it, Mr. Proctor? Down the stack pipe. Only you fell. Oh, just the last few feet. I turned my ankle. Oh, I didn't feel it at the time. I ran to where I'd hidden the bike and began to pedal home. Then I realised that I had to have an alibi. When I got to Finchworthy, I staged my accident. It wasn't difficult. I drove the cycle hard against a wall until the front wheel buckled. Then I slashed the tyres. I didn't need to worry about myself. I looked the part all right. My ankle was swelling by now and I felt sick. You must have got home well after one o'clock on Sunday morning. About a quarter past it was. Yet Mrs Proctor told us it was midnight. At half past eleven I'd gone to bed. I must have slept a little, but I got up when I heard him. It was midnight already. His face looked awful, streaked with blood, and he was shaking all over. I made him a cup of tea while he had a bath. It must have been half past twelve before we were in bed. He's still shaken up by it, even now. Does that mean Mrs Proctor... No, no, she wasn't in on it. She knows nothing about it. I'd already worked out that I had to get in without disturbing her and alter the two downstairs clocks. We don't keep a clock in the bedroom, don't like the ticking. Anyway, as soon as I set foot in the door, she's calling down to me. By the time she got her dressing gown on and come downstairs, I put the clocks back to midnight. Oh, she fussed about, get me a bath and making tea. 
I was in a sweat to get her back into bed before the town clock struck two. It was the sort of thing she'd notice. Anyway, I did get her back upstairs eventually, and she went off to sleep quickly enough. Give me the chance to put the clocks back to the correct time. I never want to live through another night like that. If Sally felt hard done by, the little bitch got her own back that night. I shall need to talk to you again, Mr Proctor. Oh, please yourself. And now, if you don't mind, I'll be on my way. You don't want me here. I can see myself out. Thank you very much. Hasn't this gone on long enough? We've heard the evidence. That back door was unlocked until Stephen locked it at 12.30. Sometime before then, someone got in and killed Sally. The police haven't found out who, and they aren't likely to. Could have been anyone. I propose that none of us says another word. You're suggesting that a perfect stranger entered the house, made no attempt to steal anything, went unerringly to Miss Jupp's room and strangled her. Meanwhile, she does nothing about raising an alarm, just lies back obligingly on the bed. She could have invited him to come. But she was expecting Proctor. She can't have wanted to make a party of that little transaction. And whom would she invite? I suppose you've checked on everyone who knew her. For God's sake, stop discussing it. Can't you see that's just what he wants us to do? But there's no proof. There's no proof against anyone. Well, we know who didn't do it anyway. It wasn't Stephen or Derek Pullen. They've got alibis. It wasn't Mr Proctor because of his hand. And Sally wasn't killed by Martha because she didn't know how the girl had died until Mr Hearn told her. Nor by you, Miss Bowers. You knocked at her door and tried to speak to her after she was dead. Nor by Mrs Risco, whose fingernails would inevitably have left scratches, and the murderer didn't wear gloves. Nor by Mr Hearn, no matter what he would like me to think. Mr Hearn didn't know which room Sally slept in. He had to ask Dr Maxey where he should carry the ladder. Only a fool would have shown that he knew. I could have pretended. Only you didn't. You were the last person who wanted Sally dead. With her installed here, Deborah might actually have married you. She never will now. <coughs> Mrs. Maxey, you have something to say? I went to her room to talk to her. I thought the marriage might not be such a bad thing if she were really fond of my son. I wanted to find out what she felt. She was lying on the bed, singing to herself. I was tired. I should have waited till morning. Even so, it would have been all right if she hadn't done two things. Stephen, she told me she was going to have your child. My God. And she laughed at me, at us, the Maxies. She laughed. It was so very quick. One second she was alive and laughing. The next, she was a dead thing in my hands. What are you doing? Packing. Why on earth did she confess, Catherine? Felix was right. They'd never have proved it if she'd kept quiet. Oh, you don't know her very well, do you? She was only waiting for your father to die. Oh, they'll have to reduce the charge. It wasn't premeditated after all. But they'll send her to prison either way. Oh, Cathy, I can't bear it. You can't bear it. You don't have to. She does. And it's you who put her there. I don't know what you feel about me now, Stephen. But it doesn't matter anyway. I was in love with you once, but not anymore. You. 
I hope you don't mind. I was passing. Come in. Thank you. Would you like a drink or tea or something? You're not on duty now, or are you? No. No, I'm not on duty. Just indulging myself. A whiskey, then? Thank you. Neat, please. There's only me here most of the time. Martha's left. A couple of the dailies come in from the village, but I'm afraid everything's getting rather shabby. Stephen is home most weekends. That helps. Of course, we'll have the house done over thoroughly well before Mummy comes back, but that's years away still. I seem to be in a sort of limbo. Ought you to be here alone? Oh, I don't mind. One of us has to stay. And how is Miss Bowers? Catherine. She comes down with James Ritchie most weekends to see the baby. I think they'll get married in the end. Oh, that's rather sudden, isn't it? Oh, I don't think Ritchie knows it yet. But she loves the child and cares about him. And the others? Felix Hearn is in Canada. Is he? Yes. I don't think he's coming back. May I? What? Come back? If you like. Would you like? Do you know? I rather think I would. In episode four of Cover Her Face by P.D. James, dramatized by Neville Teller, Robin Ellis played Dalgleish, Sean Phillips, Mrs. Maxey, Hugh Grant, Felix, Beatty Adney, Deborah, David Thorpe, Stephen, Una Beeson, Catherine, Jilly Mears, Mrs. Proctor, John Baddeley, Vic Proctor, Steve Hodson, Sergeant Martin, James Tulfer, Richie, Susan Sheridan, Johnny, Jill Graham, Martha, and Melanie Hudson, Sally. The director was Matthew Walters. Mystery Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening.